following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I didn't realize it until this week, but today actually marks the four-year anniversary of, of me being a pastor at ICC. It was actually September 1st of 2015 that I came on staff, and since I made the transition out of the corporate world into full-time ministry, I often get asked by people, what has been the biggest change or the biggest challenge for you? And I don't know if this is the number one or the biggest challenge, but one of them would definitely have to be getting people on board with serving the church or getting people to do work without having the leverage of power or pay. You know, when you're in the corporate world, these two levers are all you really need to get things done, but it's completely different, I realize, in a church setting. There's not really much that I can tangibly offer that might motivate you to serve the church, and yet I do believe there's so much to gain, and it doesn't come from me, but it comes from God himself. And to be honest, what you have to gain is far more compelling than anything that I can offer Today we'll be looking at a passage in 2 Corinthians 9 in which God lays out why we are to give of what we have in service to others, particularly those in the church, whether it's our tithes, our time, or our talents. And this is something that I believe Paul has to address because the church in the first century shares the same struggles that we have today. The truth is very few of us are are wired to want to give. Very few of us actually want to serve. And I think we often struggle to give to the church with generosity and joy because we think we have more to lose than we have to gain. We struggle to give to the church with generosity and joy because we think we have more to lose than we have to gain. And, you know, I know over the past few weeks, you've probably been getting constant emails from me or my wife, Kim. We've trying to make this big push for volunteers to serve in the children's ministry. Just grateful for everyone who's stepped up and looks like we filled our need there. Uh, and we've also been announcing this, this doorway outreach, uh, this English ministry that we're trying to relaunch, an English outreach. And um, today we're advertising additional needs in the church in which we need your help. And you may have received that one-page flyer when you entered in this morning. And it, it's tough. You know, I, I know many of us wrestle with this, and some of you may be even feeling a sense of guilt or obligation, and the truth is you don't really want to step up and serve, even though, you know, we've been asking you incessantly, and others of you may be wondering, why can't we just hire someone from the outside to, to, do, to do this, to do the things that we need, and yet I want you to hear me in this as, as one of your pastors, that I wouldn't be able to give this word today if I wasn't totally convinced that in the end, you really do have so much more to gain than you have to lose. And this is how it works in God's economy. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. And so let's read from 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15 together. This is out of the NIV. And it says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give whatever you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, when you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, you sense a different vibe from many of his other epistles. This church wasn't one of Paul's model churches, you know, truthfully. Corinth was a a cosmopolitan city at the time, at least, and and as such, it, it was a worldly church that dealt with a lot of very worldly problems. They they were dealing with a lot of sin issues within the church that Paul had to openly address. It's pretty obvious and clear as you read through these letters. And there were issues of relational division in the body. And while they felt that Paul's writings were impressive, the people here, they, they, they thought Paul himself was actually very unimpressive in person. They openly questioned his apostolic authority, so much so that Paul found it necessary in this same letter to defend himself to these people in the very next chapter from 2 Corinthians 9. And yet from these verses, you can sense Paul's affection for the people in this church, despite how they may feel about him. He loves them enough to want what is best for them, even if it means asking things of them where they are questioning his authority. So let's dig into these verses a bit. In verse 6, Paul uses a word picture that would resonate with anyone that lives in an agrarian society where farming is central to the local economy and the key to human flourishing. In verse 6 it says this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You know, in today's language, this would translate, I think, into something like this. What, what you give is what you'll get. Or you get what you give. This is an axiom that I think all of us can relate to on some level. I know many of us grew up in homes where our parents drilled in us at a young age that hard work and discipline, especially when it comes to our education, is what will reap the good life. That nothing will really determine our future outcome or future success like personal effort and dedication. But while Paul opens with this very worldly idea that the Corinthian church could no doubt relate to, he he then turns it on its head a bit. Because the focus quickly shifts away from us and what we have to give or contribute to God and how we are invited by him to grow in our faith and bring glory to him. Paul speaks of a sowing that is rooted in giving. 
And in this specific context, he's, he's talking about financial giving here. But Paul is challenging the church in Corinth to collect an offering for the persecuted church in, in Jerusalem who's in dire need. And this is not going to be another message on financial giving, but the principles that Paul lays out here, I think, applies to all types of giving in the church, whether it's the giving of our tithes and offerings, the giving of our time, or the giving of our talents or our gifts in the service of the greater church. Today, I, I want to focus in more on the giving of our time and our talents or our gifts. In verse 7, Paul writes this, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice right away, the issue is not God's need, but the issue is our hearts. We must decide in our hearts, meaning what we give, we must give out of our own volition, not out of compulsion. We're called to give with joy. And that's what Paul means when he calls us to be cheerful givers. You know, at first glance, this, this may seem a bit illogical for Paul to ask the Corinthian church to give cheerfully as if something that is something that can be controlled or, or given on command. I mean, how do you get anyone to do anything cheerfully? Just by telling them to be cheerful? Is it really possible to change our emotions by someone telling you to, or even by our own force of will? I can't think of one time in my life as a parent in which I've told my kids to change their attitude and snap, just like that. It, it, it magically happens in an instant. Oh, thanks, Dad. You know, I, I just needed you to tell me because I forgot. You know, we talk a lot about our emotions here, whether it's emotional coaching in our parenting seminars or emotional health as leaders. And if you've sat under Pastor Steve's teaching for any length of time, one of the things that is stated early and often is that our emotions are not so much feelings that are to be manipulated or controlled, but rather our emotions are windows which most honestly reveal what is in our hearts. You may have seen this slide in our parenting seminars, but I think to put it another way, our our emotions are windows into our soul, meaning our emotions are actually a gift of God because they reveal what is happening inside of us, to us, no matter how much we may try to deny it or ignore it consciously or subconsciously. So with that in mind, if, if you find yourself in a place where you cannot give cheerfully, I think... There are basically two ways that you can respond to this statement in verse 7, to give cheerfully. You can either tell yourself, one, well, since I can't give cheerfully, I'm just not going to give at all. Or you can ask yourself, why? Why am I unable to give cheerfully or serve with joy? If you fall in the first camp, let, let me just say, I don't think that's why this verse is here so that we can just dismiss giving at all. I actually think that's a cop-out for those who want to justify their disobedience. The bigger question, and I believe what God is inviting all of us to explore, is this. If we cannot give cheerfully, if we cannot serve with joy, then perhaps this is God's way of revealing to us that there is something in our hearts that needs to be examined. 
Because our ability to give cheerfully, to serve with joy, is a sign that we are giving out of a genuine faith in God and not out of guilt or duty or obligation or from a sense of entitlement where God now owes me something. This is the difference between giving from a place of faith and not out of our fears or from our flesh. I know there are many things that keep us from giving. I, you know, I'll be honest, I felt them too. Uh, I want to list just a few of the most common things that hold us back from giving and, and serving with joy. Uh, for some of us, all we see is, is our inadequacies. All we see is our inadequacies. And often what reverberates in our head is that I don't have much to offer. Or that's not my gifting. Or I, I can't make a real difference. For others of us, we struggle because we cannot give joyfully because all we see is the cost. And to us, it's just not worth the cost. It's not worth my time. It's not worth my energy. It's not worth my financial security. And for others of us, I think it's a struggle because at the end, we just don't see any personal gain. I don't have much to gain, so... I. I don't see why I would do this. How am I going to benefit? And I think Paul actually addresses all of these concerns in these verses that follow. And in verse 8, he writes, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. For those who fear that you don't have something they need, I actually, I, I want to affirm that in you. I don't think you do. God rarely asks us to do something that we are already well-equipped to do. He asks us to do things that require us to depend on Him. That is what verse 8 here says. But in that dependence, therein lies the blessing. God promises to give us what we need when we submit ourselves to give what we have in service to others. And this is when faith really comes alive when we come to a place where we are forced to depend wholly on God, and what does verse 8 tell us? That God will bless you abundantly with what you need in all things, at all times, and from that place, you will abound in every good work. What an incredible promise that is. You know, last Sunday, if you were here, uh, our brother Al Kajiwaras, representing his family, uh, um, said farewell to our church after many years of, of serving here. And, and during that time, he, he confessed that even though he had been teaching our children for many years in the, in the children's ministry, it's not something that he actually enjoyed. He said, I, I hate it. <laughs> but he, he then explained why he did it for so long. And he said this, you know, I, I know I need to have something in my life where I have to depend on God and to say, God, I can't do this. You have to do it. And I thought that was such a great word. The great reward of stepping out in faith to give when we don't feel equipped or we feel we have anything to offer is being able to see firsthand how God will supply your needs as you serve others. Verse 9 follows with this. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. 
Their righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. In verse 9, Paul is actually quoting from Psalm 112.9, which describes the characteristics of a righteous man. It's actually very reminiscent of Proverbs 31, uh, the wife of noble character chapter, if you know it. But Psalm 112, if you ever get a chance to read it, it's like the male version, I think, of, of Proverbs 31. And then Paul says this. He follows with this statement that God will supply all our needs. And, you know, for anyone familiar with the Old Testament, verse 10 would immediately remind us of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness where God supplied them with bread for food, which they called manna. But if you recall, those who lacked faith in God's provision, they tried to store more than a day's supply. And what would happen? It would rot immediately. You see, God was teaching them that he didn't want them to hoard for themselves and store more than they needed for that day. They were to depend on God for their needs for each day, every day. And Jesus echoes this when he teaches his disciples how to pray. And he says, give us this day our daily bread. When we place ourselves in a position of daily dependence where we are forced to rely on God, This is the place where we experience his miraculous provision. This is the place where God enlarges the harvest of our righteousness because this is the only place where we stop relying on ourselves and we begin to rely on God. And it is out of this place that he, we are told, he enlarges the harvest of our righteousness. And this is why if God gives us more than we need, It is from this place of surplus he calls us to give out to others what we have. And so what you begin to realize is that giving, even out of our own surplus, places us in a perpetual position of need. And this is where you experience the fullness of God's power in your life. When you, by faith, place yourself in a position where you must rely on his provision at all times. And many of us mistakenly think that God needs us. He needs our help. I don't know where this comes from. We serve an all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth just by the word of his mouth. And yet, we think he needs our help, and so we serve reluctantly and we give begrudgingly because we feel we are the ones that are making the sacrifice to God, for God. Or we think what we do is, is really for the benefit of others. And these are both lies. Notice in verse 10, it says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for your food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. It doesn't say the harvest of righteousness. It says it will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. God wants us to serve because he wants to produce a harvest of righteousness, not just among the people in our church or or around us, but he wants to produce a harvest of righteousness in us. Paul makes it clear here that when we give and when we serve by faith, the harvest of righteousness happens within us. Listen. God calls us to give and to serve not so much because he wants to do a work through us, but because he wants to do a work in us. 
This is your greatest purpose in life. Not to do great things for God and for his kingdom, but to become more like God as you seek his kingdom. And this is why Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and what? And his righteousness. God is far more interested in forming Christ in you. That is what the harvest of righteousness is. It is developing the fruit of the Spirit inside you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why? Because that is Jesus Christ in a nutshell. If you're ever asked to describe Jesus with nine adjectives, these are the words that you would use. God wants to produce the same fruit in you that exists in his son. And the sooner we realize this, the sooner we realize that serving and giving is a great privilege that benefits us far more than it benefits others. It makes us into the person that we long to be. Who among us would not want to be more loving? Who among us doesn't want to be more joyful and happy, content? Who among us doesn't want to be more patient and kind? Who among us doesn't want to be more gentle and exercise more self-control in our lives? All of us. That is what God wants to produce in us. Christ in us. So don't believe the lie that in serving God, you have nothing to gain. You do. You have so much to personally gain. And Paul follows in verse 11 this idea with an explanation as to why God blesses us. Very simply stated, he says this, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Why does God bless us? So that we can generously bless others at all times, on every occasion. We are called to be conduits of his grace, channels of his blessings. When God gives generously to us, he never meant for it to stop there. I've entitled today's message, Conduits of Grace. You know what a, do you know what a conduit is? You know, this is a term that electricians actually use very often because it describes a metal tube or a duct that protects electrical wiring. But a conduit, in a more general sense, is, is just this. It's basically a channel whose sole purpose is to safely transmit something from one place to another. It's, it's, it's like a straw. A straw has no other purpose than to help you get liquid from the inside of a cup into your mouth. So whether it's water or electricity or a drink or anything really, in this context, what what we're speaking about is how God calls us to be faithful transmitters of his grace, of his blessings. We are conduits of grace. And God designed the church to be the central place in which his blessings are to flow freely first from him, then to each of us, and then to one another. Uh, I want to share an illustration with you uh, visually that uh, I've shared before, and I I like to call it a tale of two seas. And this is an illustration um, I think it's worth mentioning again because it's such a powerful picture, I think, of the the truth that that Paul is conveying here in in, uh, verse 11. When you look at it, a geographical map of Israel, there are really only two seas that exist. There's the Sea of Galilee to the north and the Dead Sea to the south. And as you can see in the map, the, the Sea of Galilee is one that is teeming with life. 
It's surrounded by lush vegetation and has nearly, actually over 30 different species of fish, some of which cannot be found anywhere else in the world. And as you know, many of the disciples, they made a living off of this sea as fishermen because it was so overflowing with life. And then you look 90 miles to the south and we have the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is about four times the size of the Sea of Galilee. And though on the outside it looks beautiful, inside, truthfully, it's dead. Because it's filled with so much salt, actually ten times the amount of saline of ocean water is in the Dead Sea. So that nothing can live in it or around it. And this is why it's called the Dead Sea. Both of these seas are fed by the exact same river, the Jordan River predominantly. And yet they couldn't be any more different. The only real difference between the two seas is that the Sea of Galilee not only receives from the Jordan, but it also allows the water to flow out of it. The Dead Sea does nothing but take in water. It has no outlet. Nowhere in which water it receives is allowed to flow out. And I think God was very intentional in placing these two seas in Israel. And I think it's instructive for all of us. The Sea of Galilee is a picture of someone who not only receives from God, but gives from God. This person is full of life. This person is flourishing in every way. Whereas the Dead Sea is the opposite. It represents someone who does nothing but takes nothing but consumes, never lets anything that he or she receives flow out of them and flow into others. And though things may look fine on the outside, when you take a closer look, there's really nothing living inside. Listen, there's no difference between the two seas in terms of their source. Both receive water from the Jordan River. The only difference is that one takes the water it sees from above and it channels it out, while the other does not. It's the only distinction between the abundant, vibrant flourishing of life and death. I know we often quote Tim Keller and Dallas Willard and Eugene Peterson up here, but today I'm going to quote from Al Kajiwara again. He uh, stole my thunder last Sunday when he shared some of his own personal insights after over a decade of faithful service in the children's ministry. And, and he said this. Uh, I, I just so appreciated his words here. He said, Serving makes your faith come alive, and it moves it from here, that is your head, to hear your heart. Serving makes your faith come alive and it moves it from here, your head to your heart. And I think the temptation for many of us is to come to church to receive good teaching and yet to keep it confined right here, up in our heads. So many of us are thinkers and this is our happy place. And yet the harvest of righteousness that Paul speaks of here remains a mystery because we've never exercise the faith that is required to move everything we know up in our head down to our heart. And what is required to do that? The employing of our heart, of our hands and our feet. This is the place in which God intended his love to be most powerfully expressed, and that is in the church. When people come to church, they should glorify God because they have witnessed love and service and sacrifice in this place unlike any other. 
God wants you to grow. God wants you to flourish and to thrive. He wants you to give your best to him because he wants his best for you. And when you step out in faith and into this promise, and when all of us collectively do the same, the church becomes a reality of God's vision for the world. The kingdom of God begins to manifest itself in the here and now. And let me close with these last verses, verse 12 through 15. Paul writes, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So what is the end result here? Your generosity is not really about receiving more blessing for yourself. You know, this is actually a false gospel. It's called the prosperity gospel. You may hear folks like Joel Osteen and others preach this. But your generosity will result in something far greater, not necessarily material blessings, but eternal blessings. Thanksgiving, praise, worship, and glory to God. Transformation within us from the inside out. Isn't that the goal for all of us? That we would give so generously that we would always be dependent upon God's provision. And in that generous giving, we would be transformed from glory to glory for His glory. And that others who benefit from our generosity would also then give glory to God. We've all been given spiritual gifts. That means we have something that was given to us. That's the very definition of a gift. God's gifts are designed to be given away. That is the great blessing of gifts which come from God. They are fully transferable, and there is greater joy and blessing in the giving than there is in the keeping of his gifts. This is the very essence of the gospel, that God gave his only son, and that was his purpose in coming Mark says the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. And I think it can be said that we are most like Christ when we give, when we serve. It seems almost every week we come up here and make announcements about needs within the church. And it seems almost every Sunday we're asking you to step up and fill in. We have people share testimonies about how they've benefited and how they've grown through the experience. But Truth be told, at the end of the day, we, we can't force anyone here to do anything. It's a decision you have to make. Now, I believe ultimately it's a faith decision because it requires faith. And this is why Paul ties obedience to this command in verse 13. He ties it directly to your confession of the gospel of Christ. Has your belief in what God has done for you, has your confession of the gospel of Christ made any meaningful difference in how you live and how you give in your life? Does the way you give your tithes and your times and your talent to the church reflect a faith that demonstrates itself by obedience? 
know, I think the application to this message this week is pretty simple. It's pretty obvious, and we haven't tried to hide it. There are quite a few areas in our church in which we need people to step up and to serve. And I'm not going to go through all of them in detail, but if you can look at this one page here that was handed out, please refer to that. And, um, you know, on the front of the page, it lists all the different team ministries at our church and, and along with their mission statements and, and um, the deacons or, or whoever um, leading each of those different ministries um, whom you can contact. And on the back page is really just a list of, of specific roles in which help is wanted in which we need people to step up and fill in. And uh, there you can also see who to contact if you have questions or if you're interested in serving. And I and, um, just want to encourage you to really prayerfully consider how you can serve, how you can give as God has called us to. Let me close by asking you two questions today. How would you describe the state of your faith today? Does it feel vibrant and alive? Or is it better described as feeling dead? And we often fail to experience God's power, God's provision in our lives because we resist being channels of his grace to others. The second question is this. How would you describe the attitude of your heart's when you are asked to serve? Is there joy and cheerfulness or is it marked by worry or dread? What might your emotions be telling you about the state of your heart and soul? If we cannot give with a sense of joy, perhaps we're giving out of a sense of obligation or entitlement or duty. Not by faith, but in the flesh. God wants his best from you because he wants his best for you. He wants to grow your faith in him. He wants you to depend on him. He wants to give out of the surplus he has given you so that he might produce a harvest of righteousness in you. Let's pray.